Amen. 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 Come on, can we give it up for the team for leading us so well this morning? Thank you, team. We'll see you in a little bit. Yeah, grab a seat. Well, hey, welcome to Nova Church again. If you've come in since the announcements, uh, my name is Matt. I'm part of the team here at Nova. And this morning, I have the honor and privilege of preaching to you. And so if you don't like today, don't worry, it gets better. I'm not here every week. So if you do like today, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Matthew. If you're looking for the book of Matthew, it's the first in the New Testament and uh, comes right after Malachi. If you don't know where Matthew is, you're probably not going to know where Malachi is. So just go slightly past center and then keep going until you see Matthew. Hey, um, we had an incredible week last week. We were able to give away uh, over 750 backpacks. Uh, it was amazing. And even though uh, we had that kind of generosity, we still had to turn people away. So if uh, you're watching online or you're in the room and you got turned away, we're very sorry that that happened. It is a limited supply thing. Uh, but thank you, church. We wanted to say for your generosity in order to bless so many families and so many people the way that you did. Uh, I was walking to my car after the service, parked down at the Canada Game Center, thanks to uh, outside. And on the way down, I saw multiple families sitting at the bus stop with backpacks on. There was this one boy who was wearing a pink backpack because I guess that's all that he could get. And he was just amped. It didn't even matter. It was twice his size. But he was like so excited. And so thank you, church, for being the hands and feet of Jesus. And your generosity helps open the door for people. And so I wanted to say that uh, from all the team here at Nova, we're so thankful for you. Why don't we just give it up for what God did through that. And, and, and let's be believing that that is seed that will find root in good soil and that we will see salvations through it. Over 700 people encountered the generosity and love of Christ on Sunday. So let's be believing for that. All right. You ready to read Matthew 11? All right, we're going to read this verse together. And this is an invitation of Jesus. You know, it's funny, I, I often preach messages where the feedback afterward was, that was pretty serious. That was pretty heavy. And so last time I preached, I was like, guys, I'm not going to preach a heavy message. And then afterwards, someone came up and they're like, that might be your heaviest one yet. And I was like, perfect. So this morning... I'm going to preach just a nice, encouraging message. Amen? So here we go. Matthew 11. We're going to read it together. It says this. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. My yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Does that sound like the kind of faith walk with Jesus that you want this morning? We're going to talk about how we get there. So come on, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that it's living and active. God, that it is powerful. That it's like a sharpened sword that separates past all of our culture and all of the mess and all of the confusion and all of our questions and hits us right where it counts. So Father, we pray this morning as we seek to understand your word that you would, you would speak to our hearts. 
that you would speak to our minds. God, that my words would fall to the floor and be forgotten, but your truth, your conviction, your encouragement would take root in people's hearts and that it would grow up to be something that ends up being fruitful in our lives. Help us flourish, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just like a quick show of hands this morning. I need to know, where, where, are, where are like the wedding fans at? Like you just love weddings. Show of hands, like that's your thing. You're like, oh, I love going to a wedding. Like, I, I, um, like, I'm like talking about the people that, like, on TLC, you watch all the wedding shows. You know what I'm talking about? But, like, when you show up at a friend's wedding, like, you pull up. Like, it's more than just going to a wedding. You're like, oh, it is going to be a party, right? There are some people that you're like, I need to have that person at every wedding because they were just a riot the entire time. Uh, I was at a conference uh, recently. And uh, this one pastor was talking about how he's that guy. And you know what I realized as he was talking? I'm not. I'm not that guy. I I love, don't get me wrong, I love the moment in any service where two people come before God and say, we are committing to each other for the rest of our lives in accordance with what you ordained with Adam and Eve back in Genesis. I am there for that. That is my favorite part of the wedding. And it's all downhill from there, (laughs) right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I remember the first church that I worked at was a little bit more of a traditional church. And my my wife had grown up in ministry. Her dad was a pastor. And so she was ready for what we were about to experience. I was not ready for it. I, I was completely unprepared. To this point, every wedding that I had ever been to was a wedding I wanted to go to. I enjoyed. It was some friends that I had known. I knew their story. I knew a little bit of the context. And I was, like, excited for them, you know. But... This wedding was more like, you know, we got invited because we were the pastors. And so it was like someone at the church's kid. And, like, I had never met the husband, period. And I had only talked to the bride for maybe about four minutes. And if we're being honest, I probably talked about coffee the entire time. Like, it was one of those things, right? And so we, we are, like, getting ready for this wedding. And usually I'm like, I like dressing up. But I'm, like, getting my tie on. And I'm, like, putting my shirt on. And it's our first year of marriage. And I'm like, man babe, do we need to go to this wedding? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, but why do we need to go to this wedding? Like, we barely even know these people. And, and I'm like, I recognize that that's terrible, okay? I'm confessing. This is like confession time with Pastor Matt right now. Because, like, I realize that you should be excited. You're a pastor. This is a God-ordained institution. You should be. So I get that. I'm feeling all these feelings. I'm like, come on, man. Get over it. You're going to this wedding. It's going to be awesome. Right? But I'm like, babe, you were sick like like four days ago? Weren't you sick four days ago? And she's like, yeah, four days ago. And I'm like, yeah, but shouldn't we steer clear just to keep people safe? But this was pre-COVID, so that didn't work. So we pull up at this wedding, right? And, guys, it was, it was a bad scene right away. All the signage was the Disney font. You know what I'm talking about? Like you pull up at that wedding and you're like, whoa, this is going to have some fairy tale magic in it. I can just tell. And you pull up and it's like the menu board is in Disney font. The seating chart, Disney font. You know, every part of like welcome to so-and-so's wedding, Disney font. And I was like, oh, oh. And I'm, she's like, stop it. You're being bad. I'm like, I know, I know. And I'm like dragging myself out of the car and I'm like, oh, I don't even want to do this. We sit down in the seats. I'm like, there's Tinkerbell on the end of this row. There's, this is, we are in the Tinkerbell row right now, right? And then the, the procession starts, right? The groom comes in 
And then it turns out that was just like a groomsman. So I'm like, okay, I really don't know anyone at this wedding. The next guy comes in. I was like, that? And she's like, count to five, man. And I'm like, right, 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 right. So then finally the groom comes in. I'm like, that? That's the guy? Okay, interesting. Okay. Standing up at the front, I'm like, I don't think I've ever even met this guy. He doesn't look like a Disney fan. So how did this end up being, and my answer was given to me shortly after, when all the Disney princesses in the repertoire come down as bridesmaids. And I'm like, okay, this is very special. This is very special. And then they get to the ceremony. Now, this is typically the part where I'm like, oh, man, I'm in for this. I don't care who you are. You could be a stranger, and I'm going to be the one hooting and hollering when you say yes, right? Like, I'm into that. But then the minister said the worst words that he could possibly say at a wedding, which is the couple has decided to write their own vows. And I was like, oh, no. Em's like elbowing me. I'm like, no, they're always so bad, right? And usually they are. If you've written your own vows, I don't mean any offense. But it started off with to my Prince Eric. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I promise to make you laugh until you cry. And when you're crying, I promise to make you laugh. And I was like, until he has to cry again, right? It's going to be like a, its own self-serving cycle of crying and laughing. It's going to be wild. I promise to make you laugh every morning and make you coffee before I kiss you. And I'm like, man, that's going to last a month, right? Like, that's not real. This is really what you're building the foundation of your marriage on? That Prince Eric's getting coffee every morning? No, no. But Em is like, stop. And I'm like, I recognize that there's something wrong with me, Emily. I know. I'm aware. But, but here's the thing that I realized, because then we started to get a lot of invitations at the church. And was like, don't tell that story, because no one is ever going to invite us to a wedding. If you're here, we love you. I'm happy to come to your wedding. I will be the wedding dasher, right? I will just, like, right after that first entree served, we're out. We have young kids. We have to. But here's the thing. <laughs> Perfect excuse. When I would get the card, the thing is that I would look at it and be like, oh. That's a present, right? And my, my response to the invitation, if I'm being honest, which I recognize is bad, I'm confessing this, was like not excited at all. Do you know whose wedding I was really excited for, though? Mine. Do you know why I was excited for my wedding? Because I know my story. I'm fully aware of the context of the relationship that's happening in front of me. And so when... Emily Gincola walked down that aisle on that rainy day in that white dress to John Foreman's House of God forever, and I felt that little bit of <laughs> in my throat as I almost started to cry. It was because I knew that we met when we were 16 years old, and she was standing at the top of a stairwell screaming, Thousand for Crutch! I love Thousand for Crutch! And I was like, this girl's crazy, but she cute. And so we ended up becoming friends. We ended up pining away for each other at opposite times. She was dating someone, and I was like, oh, I want Emily. And then I would be dating someone, she's like, oh, I want Matt. She's like, that never happened. And I'm like, I'm aware. I need to redeem myself somehow. And then finally, after college, after years of not seeing each other, after years of not thinking it would work out, we came together, and it was like, man, this is it. And six months later, we were married. I was excited for that wedding. I was excited for my friends that I knew their story. I knew how they met. And here's what I realized. Context matters. You get excited for an invitation based on the context of who's sending it, right? 
And I just wonder if sometimes when we hear something like this verse, the words of Jesus, come follow me. I'm going to give you a real rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I wonder if we're more like, oh, another wedding. Yeah, another call from Jesus. I get it, Jesus. All right, I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm going to go to heaven one day. Where we should be more like, oh, man, I am so excited for this invitation. And I just want to put it out there that maybe the reason we're not excited is because we don't have a full revelation of the context of the invitation. You see, because if we have context of the invitation, we're going to be excited. When we have a revelation of what the invitation is actually inviting us to, it builds a response within us that I hope is more than begrudging. And so if you've ever been asked, do you want to follow Jesus? And your response is, eh, maybe we just don't have the context of what's going on. Because it's so much more than just forgiveness of sin and going to heaven one day instead of hell. It is so much more than that. So I'm just going to dig into a little bit of context right now. We need to understand a couple of pivotal aspects of the story of the Bible. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to fly through the entire Old Testament in 10 minutes. You ready? Okay, here we go. It started with a plan. So number one, we need to recognize that the context of the invitation is that God had a plan for creation. You see, when God went about creating the earth, he wanted us in the plan. Like, have you thought about this? God started with nothing and simply by speaking called into being everything that we see and touch and experience before us today. God, through six days of creation, created everything from light all the way up to the most complex microorganisms that exist. And we were part of that creation story. Now, here's something that we need to make sure we get right. In Genesis 1.26, God says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. This God who just created everything said, I want people to run this for me. And I'm not just going to use anyone. I'm not just going to use all these animals that I said, come forth animals. I'm going to shape them with my own two hands and then breathe life into them. Church, one thing we need to understand is we are separate and distinct from the rest of creation. You are made in God's image, the Imago Dei. And you're not just made in God's image because you have two arms and two legs. You are made with the characteristics and nature of God inside of you in order to rule and reign and subdue the earth and fill it. That is what we're called to. That was God's plan. That was his intention for putting humanity in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of it all. His goal was peace and growth. And when God makes us in his image, I just this is a total aside, not to get too off track here. 
all of the ancient creation epics for how gods made the earth and made humanity, usually the earth is a byproduct of a celestial war between two different gods, one one and uses the body as earth. Uh, and then humanity is just the slaves that that God had to make in order to serve them. And oh, by the way, just men. <laughs> men were the slaves. Women, well, they were just necessary in order to make more slaves. But in God's creation story, we are made in his image. Male and female, he created us. Even where Adam is used to make Eve, the rib is taken out of the side of Adam, which is communicating that woman is not under the foot of a man, but a partner to do the work that God is calling us to. This is an ancient creation epic that at the heart of it has equality, dignity, and honor. That God created us to rule and reign the earth. That he had a good plan for us to flourish. That was the plan. The plan was for us to experience relationship with each other, relationship with God, and to bring forth beauty and creation from the earth. The way that God did when he spoke. It actually says that Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. They were completely vulnerable with each other. Complete open relationship. Nothing hidden. But there was a problem. If there was a, a plan, there ended up being a problem. God puts Adam in the garden in order to work it and take care of it. And he creates these two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says to Adam, I've given you every tree for food. Eat anything you want except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now notice, if you go back and read this in Genesis, that God does not say you can't eat the tree of life. What that means is that God actually intends for us to experience life and life abundant. Eternal life was created for us in mind. And he says, but the knowledge of good and evil, the way that you define good and evil, what is and isn't right, you don't need to know that. You leave that to me. Because if you take that knowledge into your own hands, you are going to misuse it. So don't touch it, because it's going to kill you. And Adam's like, got it, that's great. And all of that works out really well until this, this personified evil in the form of a serpent that we call Satan, who Jesus calls Satan, comes to Adam and Eve and attacks them. Now, how does he attack him? He doesn't attack him with a stick. He doesn't attack him with a rock. Instead, this is what he does. Did God really say? Did God really say that you would die? He's talking to Eve in this moment. Eve's like, oh, you know, he, we're going to die if we eat that fruit. And he's like, no, you're not going to die. No, no, you don't understand, Eve. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding you back from fun. He's holding you back from experience. He's holding you back from joy. No, no, no. You surely won't die. He deceives her. And it's by defining good and evil for themselves that humanity falls. Instead of taking the life that God gave us, we end up going, no, I'm going to define good and evil for myself. I'm going to tell what is right and what is wrong. And they take the fruit and they eat it. And this whole scene unfolds where God comes down and they're like, whoa, God, that's a problem because we're naked, <laughs> right? And so they hide in some bushes and God's like, hey, why are you hiding? And they're like, well, we, um, we knew we were naked, so we hid. 
You see, the transparency is gone. Immediately they have shame. That sin, which is what we call it, of taking the fruit, of defining good and evil for themselves, results in shame and a type of relational death. They hide from God. And when God says, well, who told you you were naked? Did you define good and evil for yourself? Did you take that fruit? And this is where it gets crazy. Because Eve is like, or Adam is like, well, it was the woman that you made, <laughs> right? And you're like, whoa, right under the bus. That's fantastic. He just throws Eve right under the bus. What does that mean? Relationship with each other? That perfect, like, no shame, naked, fully vulnerable with each other relationship is broken. And now there's blame. It was you. That was your fault. No, I'm fine. But you're wrong. And so God turns to Eve. What happened? Oh, well, it was the snake that you made, right? Blames God. Blames creation. Not her fault. And relationship with God's creation, with each other, and with God himself is broken in this moment. You see, sin produces separation. And that, when God is a source of our life, could also be classified as death. When we sin and we separate and break our relationship with God and with each other, we experience a type of spiritual death. And a literal death. Adam and Eve were never destined to die. But because of this, they ended up dying. And God says something very interesting to the serpent in this moment. We're going to get to that in just a second. But here's the problem. They had no way of paying that sin back. Once they were out of the garden, there was no going back into the garden. They couldn't atone for it. They couldn't make up for it. It was over. It was finished. And this is the problem of sin. Sin makes us debtors. That's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our debts. Because we actually accumulate sin. And if the law of sin, just to put it simply, were to be that for one sin, you need to pay one life to make it right. What happens when we sin twice? We can't pay it back. It's beyond our control. It's out of our hands. And I don't know about you, but I know me personally, I am in significant debt. I have made many mistakes. I am very flawed. I am very human. And I experience this all the time. I experience this when I yell at my kids or my wife or when I have, you know, relational conflict with my family and I don't deal with it well. When I talk bad about someone behind their back, when I'm driving on the highway, just plain and simple, that is my biggest debt load right there. But here's the thing, we can't pay it back. We can't pay it back. And the problem is that humanity doesn't just eat one little bit of like, oh, I'll define good and evil for myself. There's a scene with the son of Adam and Eve named Cain. And Cain is trying to give sacrifices to God, and Abel, his brother, is sacrificing animals to God. And God's like, I like his sacrifice, I don't like yours, Cain. And Cain gets jealous. And God says, Cain, be careful because sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. And Cain, instead of saying, well, I'm going to keep that sin out, goes, I'll let it in. And he ends up murdering his brother. This is like generation two of humanity. 
and it gets a lot worse from there. Cain ends up building a city, ends up putting walls around enclosures in order to keep people out. Think about the broken relationship that's involved with this problem. Ends up becoming an enemy of Israelite, of the Israelites, generations later. His descendants end up forming Babylon, which is the archetypal evil in the, in the Old Testament. And all throughout history, we have the chance to do right, choose life, or define good and evil for ourselves. And over and over and over, humanity chooses to define good and evil for themselves. Racism, prejudice, pride, jealousy, anger, gluttony, malice, so on and so forth. It's all choosing to define good and evil for ourselves. This will bring me satisfaction. This will bring me fulfillment. This will make me feel better. This puts me ahead. And instead of choosing life, we end up choosing death. And the problem is that when we choose death, we can't pay it back. But something that's amazing is that there's a promise that God puts right in here. It says this in chapter 3 of Genesis. God is still talking to Adam and Eve and the snake about the consequences of their sin. There's some fascinating stuff in there about toil and authority and, and it being abused by Adam as a husband to Eve. But check this out in verse 13. It says this. God is talking to the snake, the serpent in this moment. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, what God is doing in this moment is he was like, you messed up. You really messed up. But I have a plan for how I'm going to defeat this enemy, the snake, the Satan. I'm going to defeat this enemy. There's going to be a, one of your descendants, Eve, who is going to step on his head, and he's going to bite his heel, but he's going to kill the snake. So there's this promise of redemption. And the way that it's talked about is through one of Eve's descendants, a person. And all throughout the Old Testament history, we see these people coming to the plate as a contender, and they're standing there, they brush it off, they're like, oh, I'm going to take on the devil today. And then he throws a curveball and they just totally miss. They totally strike out every single time. Let's just look at the list. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Moses failed. Joshua failed. The judges of Israel, some of the worst people in all of recorded history. Terrible judges. Saul failed. David, now David's an interesting case. Because you get up to David and David always does what God wants. There's a scene where he can murder Saul, his enemy, who's trying to kill him, pursuing him. David's been anointed king already, but he's waiting for God to take Saul off the throne. And he's in a cave with a knife behind him. And he's like, this could be my moment. Sin is crouching at the door. But instead of defining good and evil for himself, he goes, no, no, you're God's to deal with. I, ch I choose life. I choose your way, God. You deal with Saul. You see what he does? He overcomes the temptation of sin crouching at his door. And so you're like, this could be it. The warrior King David, a man after God's own heart. And then he doesn't go to war and do what he's supposed to do. See, sin was crouching at his door. David, you should probably just take it easy this season of war. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, right? This war season, you should probably just take it easy. Just sit on the couch, man. You've been working hard, David. You know what, go for a walk outside. Just take a look at your kingdom. So he's like, okay. 
He goes and takes a look, and he's like, oh, look, a naked woman. I want her. Oh, she's married. Oh, well, that doesn't matter. I want what I want. I'm going to define good and evil for myself. And what ends up happening is that Uriah the Hittite, he gets Bathsheba, this woman, pregnant. Uriah the Hittite comes back from the front because he's like, ooh, I got to cover this up. He's like, hey, Uriah, Uriah, can you, can you just go and know your wife in the biblical sense? And he's like, uh, no, I can't do that, David, because all my brothers are still fighting on the front lines. He's like, you're right, man. You're such a man of honor, Uriah. <laughs> we'll try again tomorrow. Tries again the next day. See, sin is crouching at Uriah's door as well. But Uriah goes, no, no, that's not right. I'm not going to do that. Even though he's a Hittite, he's not covenantly in with Israel. And so David goes, you know what we got to do? Let's put him at the front line of an advance on the strongest part of our enemy's wall to make sure that he dies. And 17 Israelites are killed in that attack. And when his general comes to tell him, David goes, but tell me about Uriah. Is he, he's, he's, yeah, he's dead, David, but so are a lot of other people. Well, that's okay. See, David failed. Because when sin was crouching at his door, he let it in. And now he's in debt. How many sins did he really get into there? <laughs> Let's just say he was perfect, which he was not. He is now significantly in debt. So he wasn't the one. He wasn't the king. And his his boys? Let me tell you about his boys. They were real bad. As the kings of Israel, they end up getting to the point where they are sacrificing children in Israel, sacrificing to other gods, to Baal and Ashtoreth. They are making a mockery of their covenant relationship with God. And it gets so bad that God says, I got to take you out. He uses these people called the prophets to give the promise to remind them there's one coming who is going to crush the head of the snake, but you got to wait. They use all this beautiful imagery about this living water flowing from a source through the city, turning a city which cuts people off into a garden city that everyone can come to to find refreshing. There's a promise of one who is still to come. And time and time again, people fail and people fail and people fail. Until it leads to one person. One person who is born of a virgin in a manger to the lowest tribe of Israel in the worst town of Israel. And in that moment, God enters the scene himself. And there's this moment of revelation where he goes, no, I'm the one who crushes the snake. Because you can't do it. Everyone that I've put up to the plate has failed, swung out, missed. They've let sin come in. But I'm going to send my own son to do it for you. And what ends up happening in this moment is that Jesus steps up to the plate and Satan comes at him with everything he's got. He tempts him in the desert. He tempts him with, with bread, physical need. He tempts him with fame, jumping off the temple. He tempts him with power and authority, all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus says no to all of them. He succeeds where everyone else fails. And then it says the devil left him until an opportune time. And the final scene that we see before Jesus goes to the cross is in a garden where a snake comes to him and says, 
hey, you, you don't want to do this. This is going to hurt. Did God really say this is how it had to be? And we look at the prayer of Jesus as he says, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. See, Jesus didn't want to die. He wasn't a masochist, you know. It's not like Jesus was like, man, let me tell you, they're going to make a lot of movies about this. The special effects department's going to have a day. No, he wasn't looking forward to it. He actually didn't want to do it. But the reason that he did it is because he needed to get us back to the tree of life. He needed to define good and evil for us again. Which is why he came as a teacher, to show us how to live, to show us the way to be, to show us what we were meant to do. Jesus is the person that we were waiting for. And if we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he's actually the archetype of who God made in his image to rule and reign on the earth. That's why God gives him all authority and power. Because he says, you're the one that I originally intended. You've done it where everyone else has failed. But here's the good news, church, the euangelion, the gospel. You are invited into Jesus' victory. You are invited into Jesus' victory. He won in the garden where Eve lost in the garden, and he says, and now I've won for you. And so I'm inviting you. Church, the invitation of Jesus is into that abundant, ruling, and reigning life. John 10.10, Jesus calls it life and life abundant. Faith is not meant to be boring. It's not just following rules. It's not just going to heaven one day and staying out of hell. It's not just having your guilt absolved when you do something wrong. It's about taking the power of sin and death and crushing its head and living in victory. This is what Jesus is inviting you to. So when we get that invitation, we got to be like, "Woo! I'm going to a party. The first invitation is to follow. Matthew 11 is what we read. Jesus says, come follow me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it, so I'm going to read it out of the message. It says this, are you tired? You weary? Are you worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. Work with me. Walk with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and check this out. You'll learn to live freely and lightly. He's talking about the removal of sin, church. We can't be free and light if we still have sin. And by the blood of Jesus on the cross, when we come to him and say, forgive me, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west. Here's the great news. Your debt is paid. All the things that you've done that you can't possibly pay back on your own, all the separation from God that we experience and separation from each other is paid. It's over. It's finished. That's what he said on the cross. It is finished. But it's so much more than just the forgiveness of sin. It's also talking about the freedom to live the way that we were meant to live. Do you ever find yourself being like, man, I I don't do the things I want to do, and I I find myself doing the things I don't want to do, and if I keep doing the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do, oh, who can save me? That's what Paul says in Romans. And then the next chapter he says, thanks be to Christ Jesus, that in him there's no sin. 
It's taken care of. We get to live free. He's asking you to follow him and discover who he is. And I want to be clear with something here. The team can come on out. You guys come on back out. Team, you're somewhere. Come on. Hey, you got it. I gave him the wrong cue. He's asking you to follow him and to be with him, to discover who he is. He's asking you to see what the tree of life looks like instead of defining good and evil for himself. That's why he came as a teacher. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most critical things that we can learn as disciples of Jesus. That's why the epistles, the letters of the New Testament writers are all about breaking down what it looks like to live and follow Jesus and do it well. Because it's not about just not sinning so we don't make God angry. It's about living in freedom and life instead of defining good and evil for ourselves, allowing God to define what good and evil is and staying away from it because we recognize it for the thief and robber that it is that so easily entangles us and holds us down and chokes the life out of us. Church, God doesn't want you to not sin because he's just like, oh, I can't handle some sin. It's because it, it kills you. It kills those made in his image. It robs you from the plan and purpose that he has for you. So his invitation is to follow him and discover who he is. But at some point, as we follow Jesus and we discover who he is, that means that we're going to have to submit. Now, I know that word can be loaded because it carries a whole bunch of power dynamics, abuse throughout history. But the way that Jesus uses submit is, is a little bit different. We can read it together in Matthew 16, 24. It says this, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Be with Jesus, become like him, do what he did. Must, take, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He's saying, be done defining good and evil for yourself. Be done eating that poisonous fruit. And step into the life that I have for you. I know you want it. It's because you're, you're broken. It's because that image that I made you in has been shattered. Your relationship's broken to me and to other people. It's because your appetite has gotten wrong. You have disordered desires. But I'm calling you higher. Stop living that way. Do you know how many times Jesus heals someone and says, now go and sin no more? We're like, oh, Jesus is light on sin. He's not. If he was, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He would have been like, well, it's fine. He fulfilled it for himself to bring us back to himself. He's dead serious about it. We're invited to submit to God and his way of doing things. Paul in Romans 12 too says it a little bit differently. He says, in light of all of this, I plead with you to lay down your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Paul's way of putting it is that we stay alive, but we die to our own desires. We die to sin crouching at the door behind us and saying, just take it. It's not gonna hurt anyone. It'll make you happy. But when we submit to Jesus, we say, what makes you happy? 
Do you know what he gives us? He gives us a bite of life. Except instead of fruit, he says, I'm living water. If you drink from me, you're never going to thirst again. I got way more for you than that poisonous fruit. Here, take a sip. I am good. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And what that leads to as he calls us deeper is partnership. You are invited to partnership, church. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says this. Jesus came and told his disciples, he's risen from the grave at this point. He's defeated hell in the grave. He's paid for your sin on the cross. These are the last words that he says to his disciples before he goes into heaven. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, compare and contrast that to Genesis 1. Go. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. I give you authority. It's a new creation. He's calling us back to the plan, church. And whether we partner with him financially by giving of our finances in order to build what he's doing, whether we partner with our time by volunteering in our local church, whether we partner by bringing backpacks so the kids in our community can walk into school in September with their head held high and dignity and honor on them, or whether we're stepping into partnership in personal discipleship to Jesus, walking into our work saying, Holy Spirit, where are you at work today? He doesn't want it to just be this big institution doing the work, church. He wants to work in your life. He wants to partner with you. You know why? Because that was always the plan. You were made to be a ruler and a reigner on the earth who fills it and subdues it, who brings forth the beauty and the life and the promise of his creation. And that's still called what we're called to do. We are still called to the Genesis 1 mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. So I want to invite you this morning to consider where are you at in the invitation? Are you being invited to follow Jesus for the first time and you're like, man, I've tried it. I feel the problem. I recognize that there's no solution. But now that you're telling me about it, I, I want that. I want to be free from my sin. I don't want to live entangled in it. I don't want to live under its power anymore. I know it's crouching at the door. It's not at the door anymore. It's in my house. And I want to be free. Great news. Jesus wants to set you free. And his invitation is come and follow me. And maybe, maybe you've asked Jesus to forgive you, but you've just decided to continue defining good and evil for yourself. Maybe his invitation for you this morning is to submit. To say, God, you're more than just my Savior. You're my Lord. So how you tell me to live is how I'm going to live. Or maybe the invitation for you this morning is to partner. Maybe you got to get off the bench. Maybe you've been living your life personally devoted to Jesus and that's going really well, but you're not feeling alive in your faith. Maybe you feel like your faith is boring. Can I tell you something? If you feel like your faith is boring, God probably thinks it's boring too. Because it's not called to be a static faith. It's called to be an active faith. 
where we partner with the spirit of the living God to see livers, <laughs> rivers of living water flow. We're called to get them a sip, church, of living water. We got to drink it ourselves, submitting to him, following him. And then we got to turn around and help get people away from that poisonous fruit. Maybe it's been years since you shared the gospel with someone. It doesn't need to be a sermon. It can be the testimony of your life. It can be as simple as just saying Jesus loves you. But church, if we're going to see this city one for Jesus, if we're going to see people experience life and life abundant, it doesn't happen from four pastors doing it. We are the church. He's calling us to follow. There's an invitation before us. So as we close today, I just want to ask the question, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you want to follow Jesus for the first time, maybe you've heard about Jesus, maybe you're learning about Jesus, but you're like, I want to make a decision to follow him, to go deeper with him, to be forgiven of my sin, to be set free from its power. Would you just lift your hand high enough and long enough for me to see it? Yeah, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Anyone else, you want to become a Christian today. You want to follow Jesus. You want to make him the Lord of your life. Anyone else? Well, Father, we thank you so much for these hands that have gone up. God, we thank you for what you're doing. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that as people commit to following you, as they go after what it is that you're doing, Lord, they'll step into the invitation of your goodness. God, that they'll step into following you, stepping away from that poisonous fruit and into life. God, that they'll commit to submitting to your lordship, doing it your way. And Lord, that we'll have a church that is partnered with your spirit and what you're doing in our city. So Father, I thank you for these hands that are raised. I pray that this would be more than just a good start, but that it would be ultimately a change forever. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hey, if you lifted your hand this morning, I just wanted to say we have a, uh, a text number that you can just text the word faith to. And what that's going to do is that's just going to let us know that you're starting that faith journey. It's going to help us resource you to walking that out because you may be like, I have a billion questions. We want to answer them. So well, all you got to do is text the word faith to 902-903-2682. You text that number. You can also just chat with them at Guest Central, that yellow wall out there, and they'll help you with that decision. But church, we're gonna, we're gonna dismiss now, but I would love, if you made that decision, I would love to talk with you personally as well. And I wanna invite you, church. The invitation of Jesus is to embrace the person who overcame the problem to get us back on plan. Let's do it together, amen, amen. Well, be blessed, church. The coffee is flowing. Head on out. Say hi to someone. Welcome them. We love you. We'll see you later.